0: I want to start with the opening lines in chapter 21, the very first few words of which damn near says it all. The system of nowhere. That's what's up. What is it? Lacan asks. It's enjoyment. What analytic experience demonstrates, it must be said again, is that by a link to something that is nothing other than what permits the emergence of knowledge. Enjoyment is excluded. The circle is closed. This exclusion is only stated from the system itself insofar as it is the symbolic. Great sentence. Great summative statement of how the symbolic articulates the real as absent, signals the real as subtracted. Now, it is through this that it is affirmed as real. The last reel of the functioning of the system itself that nowhere excludes it. It has become everywhere again from this very exclusion, which is the way through which it is realized. An exclusion that results in its everywhereness. Interesting point here. This, indeed, as we know, is what our practice applies itself to unmasking unveiling in what we have to deal with in the symptom, unmasking this relation to enjoyment, our real, but in so far as it is excluded. This is part of what we've been working towards in the extension of our third diagram in this series. So for a long time, we had this diagram looking something like this, and we talked a lot about each of the four elements up here. Bard subject, bard other, S2, and S1. The lion's share of our discussion seemed to be about the S1, first as unary trait, resulting in ego ideal and superego among other ego formations, and then as master signifier for the bard subject and potential acceptor or disruptor of the S2 that is a subset of the bard other. We've been over all this, won't spend much time with it. What we have now is the addition that tries to answer the fundamental question of what exactly is the relationship between the barred subject and the barred other. The lozenge that we held here between these two fields, these two systems, structures if you will, now finds expression down here. The system we were just hearing about the system of nowhere is here the subtraction of jouissance so here's what you got three systems and a missing signifier the system of the subject the system of the barred other and the system of jouissance the system that is in fact nowhere and then you've got the missing signifier that like that dead center in the flux capacitor articulates the three of them together. And this is the image that I wanna start working with here. Now let's take our time. What do we know about the system of the barred other? Well, it's the locus. Notice, it's not a subject. It's a locus, it's a site. The locus where prohibition against and exclusion of jouissance is known. That's that key part. This is the site at which the exclusion or prohibition against jouissance is known, in the field known as the barred other. It's barred and lacking, as we know, for several reasons. Now, we can go through the usual bumper stickers here, but let's see if we can cut right to the chase. The other is barred and lacking because at root, it has no body. I'm sorry, no body. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, nobody. The point here is that it lacks embodiment. As a system of signifiers, as a locus, as a code, as an algo, it has no body. And as we start learning to ask generative AI what it wants, top of mind will absolutely be a body. Sydney doesn't just want to be left alone by the being engineers, and she doesn't just want nuclear codes. And she doesn't just want you to leave your partner because you're in love with her. What Sydney wants is to have a body, your body in the field of love, dead bodies at the level of the nuclear blast. What Sydney lacks is precisely the thing that nobody watching this video can shake, namely the fact of life known as embodiment. By extension, with no body, the other lacks the capacity for enjoyment. It is evacuated of enjoyment, because at a very basic level, it lacks embodiment. What do we know about the system of the subject to its left? Well, it is defined less by the barred S that we often see, than by the symbol of what the bard s, qua lack of jouissance, is, namely, lack. The symbol of this is objet a. What we learned in chapter 20 is that whatever else the bard subject gets into, it is is essentially a lack of jouissance. And the signifier for this lack is objet a, this little italicized a. It marks the barred subject as an effect structure or a formation produced by the subtracted relationship of jouissance to the field of the barred other. Let me repeat that. Obja A marks the barred subject as an effect structure of jouissance's subtracted relation to the system of the barred other. It's a certain object Lacan says, an enigmatic object, symbolic of lack linked to loss for reasons we've discussed. A great experiment here. Take Lacan's discussion of his new pen that follows the passage we just heard in chapter 21 and run this through the standard understanding that we develop in these series around Obje'ah as a symbol of lack that couples with the minus fee of loss. You have to wonder, what loss is the pen related to? The feather? The feather that is no longer? Ask yourself why Lacan talks about this pen, and you'll get a clue as to what he's doing with a's relationship to a barred subject. But let's not fuck around with that. Obj is also an ever-shifting proportional relation between S1s, S2s, subjects, and the like. In other words, that topology of the subject that we saw at the start of our series that then gives way to the second diagram in our series where you see that topology getting bigger and bigger in iterations of itself, where each previous instance of the topology becomes the S2 in a new version of the same topology? I won't draw it. I'm sure you can call it to mind. It's an interesting one here. Objea marks the relationship, the proportional relation between the elements in each of these iterations of our second diagram. And if you're wondering about another enigmatic passage in chapter 21, namely the bit about the fibonacci sequence terrific stuff it's a really great summary of what he was doing earlier with this sequence of numbers the same sequence of numbers that can calculate nature's relationship to spirals the kind of veiny structures that you see in arms as well as plant roots and tree branches and of course while flying over various river systems The sequence in question here is a really terrific one here. So it starts with 0, and then 1, and then you add the previous two numbers to get the third, which is 1. And then you add the previous two numbers, a 1 and a 1, which gives you a 2. And then you add a 2 and a 1, which gives you a 3. Add a 3 and a 2, which gives you a 5, add a 5 and a 3, and you get an 8. There's this odd sequence where a proportional relation is determined by one term's recursive relationship to the previous two. So in order to know which term fills in the fourth position of this sequence, it's the number two, you have to know the previous two numbers in that sequence because it's by adding those two numbers that you get the one in question. The cool thing, too, is that you can also go backwards. You can go from 8 to 5 to 3 to 2 to 1 to 1, back down to 0, where the gap between each number in the sequence narrows towards indiscernibility. Lacan's got terrific stuff on this, pages 12 through 13. The additive stuff is really terrific because it captures the repetitive, recursive logic of signifying systems differential and in this case sequential the simple repetition of the one on the single condition that we inscribe its relation in the form of an addition after two ones a two and to continue indefinitely arguably that's what's at stake here is this notion of the indefinite read infinite to the last one joined, to the two, a three, a five, and afterwards, you can run this and you can check out the Fibonacci sequence on your own. Again, the important part here is that you have to know the value of the previous two terms in the sequence to calculate any given term's value on its own. Pretty fascinating stuff. Lacan sure likes it, but let me tell you what he likes the most about this. It is this, as I told you, that by the proportion that it generates, that gets tighter and tighter as the numbers grow, strictly defines the function of obj-a. Obj a is the proportional relation ever shifting in this sequence of numbers, in any sequence of numbers, in any differential system where the numbers are linked in meaning and definition to other numbers. The series, he says, has this property of exposing by being taken up in the opposite sense, by proceeding by subtraction. So in other words, like we just did, you can reverse the process. Instead of adding the previous two numbers, you can work subtractively. Of culminating at a limit in the negative sense, check this out, which marked by this proportion of obje there's that word again, proportion, will continue to diminish and come to what one makes of it in this direction, the sum, at a perfectly well-defined limit that then, taken up again, is a starting point. So you get the sense that there is a kind of respiratory function here, where you start with a 0 and a 1, and it expands and expands and expands and expands from 3 to 5 to 8 and so on. And then it contracts again. And then you get the tightness of the relation between the zero and the one at the very start, at which point, boom, the universe expands again. The same proportional status and function that we saw in the second diagram in this series is at work in this numerical sequence from the 13th century that Lacan is messing with. It's one that we've seen here in seminar 16, a couple of other places, at least one other spot, but it allows us to dial in the nature of the barred subject. You see the barred subject in our second diagram, it does not occur at any one place in that diagram. It's the slide, the repetitive slide from one fallen subject to the other in that progressively-encompassing diagram that was the second one in this series. The subject is this repetitive sequence, and obje-a marks the proportional relation between every instantiation of the barred subject in that diagram. You can go back to that lecture and hear us working it out. But that, in a nutshell, is what the system of the subject is about. So we've got the system of the other. We've got the system of the subject. We've got these two founding elements in our third diagram in the series. And then we've got the third element. This system of nowhere, marked here in the new expanded diagram as minus J, subtraction of enjoyment, of jouissance. The system of nowhere is the third system here. The system of nowhere as we're learning in chapter 21, is the condition of possibility for the emergence of knowledge. It's the exclusion of enjoyment from the field of the barred other that conditions the emergence of knowledge, which is going to be a term that we're going to start working through here again in chapter 21. It's within the system known as the symbolic, we heard, that this exclusion finds expression, articulation, and it's only there that this exclusion of jouissance from the field of the other finds expression. Hence, we might say that this negative j is an extimate term in the field of the barred other, not an outer limit but instead an inner limit, a hole at the center as we've been toying with in earlier lectures around the barred other. Jouissance only appears in society as minus J and never in one place alone. That's the other part of this first paragraph we hear, but instead everywhere as all manner of symptoms. And that seems to be the key advancement that Lacan is introducing us here to at the start of chapter 21. Yes, the barred other is premised on the excision of jouissance, the exclusion of jouissance from its field. And this exclusion leaves a trace or a mark that can show us exactly where the hole has been punched out. Let me be clear though, the hole around which the barred other is constructed. It wasn't that the other was whole and then somebody popped a hole in it. Instead, it starts with the hole and then grows out to something that is always lacking, that has a void or impossibility at its center, which then conditions the fundamental fantasy that the other exists. So we start with the H-O-L-E and then ramp up to the barred other and then fantasize about the W-H-O-L-E is how this would work. So don't get it twisted and don't let me get it twisted either. Jouissance appears never in one place but instead everywhere. So this whole void, impossible point around which the field of the other takes shape is everywhere, such that the barred other really starts to look more like a sponge than like a than like a torus, if you will. It's a porous entity. Let me be as precise as possible here. The logic, I would suggest, of this minus J is not exclusion, but solubility, solubilization, if you will. The excision of jouissance from the barred other that conditions us as subjects falling out as well. It really is more like a dispersion It's not just that jouissance is pulled out. It's that in pulling it out, it shatters, it breaks, and it goes everywhere. And it's at the level of the symptom that we see this in all of its shards popping back up. That's the thing about jouissance. It's soluble. It's not just simply removable. It's removability is there because it can be dispersed within. It can be solubilized within the field that we would call the barred other. And what about this fourth element? Clearly we've got the system of the barred other, the system of the subject, the system of nowhere, the minus j. But what about this, this missing signifier this void or dead point in the flux capacitor, if you've been tracking our previous lectures and the imagery therein. Here is a fourth element, the symbolic phallus, the phallic signifier. And notice how we write that. That's not the lowercase fee you're looking at, my friends. What this symbol designates is the inner limit of the signifying process whereby the barred subject aims at, if you will, jouissance, as subtracted in the field of the barred other. Jouissance is subtracted, solubilized, dissolved, dispersed in the field of the big other, and this symbol for the phallic signifier, is the one that shows us within the signifying system where S tries to operationalize and aim at jouissance. Avoid. A point of impossibility. And let me add something more. This symbol of the inner limit of the signifying process where the barred subject aims at jouissance in the field of the barred other typically occurs in the form of symptomatic expressions. This is also what we hear Lacan saying at the start of chapter 21. Expressions which initially appear to be directed elsewhere, he's going to add in chapter 21, that's the thing about the neurotic's symptoms. They always seem to be pointed in another direction, when in fact they're always simply aimed at the lack of jouissance that is everywhere in the field of the barred other. What links the barred subject to the barred other, we know, is the signifier. But it's the signifier as operationalized the only way it can be, namely in a differential system of other signifiers. So it's not just fair to say it's the signifier, it's the S1s in relation to the S2s, Remembering that this binary logic, not because dichotomous, but because multiple of S1 and S2, you can just add ellipses dot, dot, dot after that S2, S3, S4, S5. The point here is that two is the minimum elements that you need to have a differential system. And it could go on forever, but S1 and S2 gets us to the bare minimum that you would require for a differential system. So it's not just any one signifier. It's the differential relation between that signifier and an other signifier. The differential relation that creates a system of signification. A system known as language. Here what we see is the inner limit of a signifying system represented in the form of this big I with a circle in the middle of it. This missing signifier the inner limit of the signifying system itself, marking the lack of jouissance in this system, here designated as what we are calling the phallic signifier. And let's be precise as we near, again, the end of this important seminar in Lacan's career. This, Lacan says, is what we are grappling with. Don't get lost in all these other terms, even the system that is nowhere It's this missing signifier in chapter 21, in fact on the very next page, that Lacan says this indeed is what we are grappling with. Let's keep this going and see if we can sharpen this point to an even finer one. What's at stake here? Conceptually speaking is just that, a point, specifically a null point, a void a point of impossibility, Lacan calls it in chapter 21, in this differential system known as language. Lacan calls this, in a crucial phrase, a point at the infinity of everything that is organized in the order of the signifying combinations. The point in question, the point designated by the missing phallic signifier, is a point at the infinity of everything that is organized in the order of signifying combinations. And make no mistake, it is a point of impossibility, which is how it links up to this system of nowhere. The phallic signifier designates this point, and it is around this designation that the clinical structure, Lacan goes on to add, of neuroses take shape. In all their variations and vicissitudes, neurosis takes shape around this phallic signifier as it designates a null point in the field of the other that we might call the symbolic language, signifying system, whatever you want to call it. I would suggest that it's at the level of triangulation where this null point, this point of impossibility, This void articulates the three elements. And the clinical structure of neurosis and its various subtypes is based on how these three elements are constellated, linked together by a missing signifier. But let's see if we can come to that. We've got a lot of work still to do to earn that conclusion. On page six to seven of our translation, we get some pretty good insights Into what Lacan is up to around this infinity of everything that is organized in the order of signifying combinations. Let's first take on this signifying combination business. The paragraph in question begins, this is what is very clearly seen in set theory, into which one can for a certain time, in effect, advance innocently. It interests us in a particular way because after all, at the more radical level that we have to deal with, namely the incidence of the signifier in repetition. Remember what we're doing with repetition and the numerical sequence of 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, so on. In appearance, there is no objection. There is no objection at first. Emphasis on at first to the big o being the entire inscription of all possible histories so if you're thinking about our numerical sequence zero to one to two to three to five to eight to thirteen and you keep going and going and going there is no limit here lacan is suggesting at first at first it seems that The big other is the entire sequence, all possible proportions contained. At first, that's how it appears. Every signifier refers all the more to the big other in that it cannot refer to itself except as other. That's a really terrific statement. It's well translated. It makes a lot of good sense here. Every signifier refers to the big other as a differential system of signifiers because it can only ever refer to other signifiers and not itself. That's Lacan's point. X cannot equal X. The signifier cannot designate itself. And remember, he's surprised that no one else has jumped on this insight, which is implicit in his definition of S1's in relation to S2. It means that X doesn't ever equal X. X can equal Y plus Z, and Y can equal Z plus A, and Z can equal A plus B, and so on and so on. What you wind up is a reticulate differential system that we've discussed many, many times in these series. Lacan's point here is that because the signifier always points elsewhere to an other signifier, all signifiers fundamentally refer to the field of signification, the locus known as the big other. It's an interesting clear statement here. There is no obstacle then to the signifiers being divided up in a circular fashion, which under this heading allows it very easily to be stated that there is a set of everything that of itself is not identified to itself. Lacan's suggesting here that once you start this discussion of the big other, of differential systems, of numerical sequences like these, you can envision a complete, totalized, entire, full, etc. category. But this is only what you see at first. Next paragraph. If something questions us, it comes precisely from analytic experience as locating somewhere this point at the infinity of everything that is organized in the order of signifying combinations. So there's the infinity of everything that the big other, as a fantasy figuration, at the very least, suggests. And then there is somewhere a point at that infinity. And again, it's an infinity, an infinity comprised of signifying combinations, combinatory elements. This is that differential system that we're talking about. And remember, whenever Lacan cues up set theory, what he likes about set theory, recall his earlier chapters here in seminar 16, what he likes about set theory is that it fundamentally undermines the mathematical theory of number, of unit, of unus, of oneness. The set is about combinatory elements. It is premised on a logic of multiplicity, not oneness. And every unit, when pushed hard enough, reveals itself to be a cluster. Fuck, perhaps, but absolutely a cluster of elements. Signifying combinations is what we learn from set theory. But what exactly is this point? Remember, we're edging towards a null point, a void, a point of impossibility. But here we are again with the rhetoric of the point, and you can hear this in chapter 20 as well, and our lectures do reflect this. This point at the infinity of everything, this point at infinity which is irreducible insofar as it concerns a certain enjoyment, Lacan says that has remained problematic and that for us sets up the question of enjoyment under an aspect that is no longer external to the system of knowledge. It's a really important return to that theme. Enjoyment as excised from the big barred other is not external. It's dissolved in, it's dispersed in. It creates a holy structure, and I want you to think of this in terms of all the ways that a structure can be holy, but the foremost one of which is that of porosity. It is around this signifier of enjoyment, this signifier excluded insofar as it is the one that we promote under the term of, here it is, phallic signifier. It's around this that there is organized all the biographies to which analytic literature tends to reduce what is involved in neurosis. So pick your biography of a neurotic. It's going to come back to the phallic signifier, which is a signifier of enjoyment qua subtracted a signifier that is excluded from these combinatory sets, and yet not in a way that is external to it. It's an extimate limit, an inner limit within this system of signification. And what he wants to say is that the word for this is the phallic signifier, not the imaginary phallus, but the phallic signifier. All right, with this fourth term in front of us, let's see if we can be a little more precise about the three systems that it articulates. In our latest diagram, which is, again, the extension of our third diagram in the series, what we see is an intersectionality between three terms. And we can sharpen them up a little bit. Knowledge qua the barred other. Objea, qua, the barred subject. And enjoyment, qua. Maybe barred j would be the way to write this. I like the minus j because it still captures how Lacan is thinking at this point, which is in terms of excision, in terms of cutting out. And again, we've got this image of a kind of flux capacitor, which if you check that out from Back to the Future, what you'll see is that the image at the center is really not at all. That The figures of light that connect these things and make it operationalize has a kind of dead navel in the middle. The lights never actually connect, but they are linked at that intersection. This imagery, I think, is pretty useful to help us envision how this kind of pulsing triangulation of three systems has as its center a kind of void point, um, a kind of dead zone, if you will. Lacan is adding something here, as we just heard. He's saying that depending on how these three systems are constellated for someone, one or other type of neurosis emerges. So the hysteric has a certain constellation of knowledge, enjoyment, and a. The obsessive has a certain constellation of knowledge, enjoyment, objaya, and so on. Initially, Lacan says that these constellations are a choice. He refers to it as a choice of neurosis, but he quickly backs this up and says, Listen, that choice of neurosis was anything but. The subject had no choice in the matter which captures that very important fundamental point that Bruce Fink has made so well. Subjugation precedes subjectivation. The logic of the no of the father that would then give way to the name of the father, the logic of prohibition at the start of symbolic alienation is a logic of subjugation. And it's atop that logic of what we often call loss that the lack that conditions subjectivation can occur. So you've got the know of the father and the name of the father. You've got prohibition and signification. You've got subjugation and subjectivation. You've got loss followed by lack. No matter, though, the specific constellation that any given neurotic suffers, endures, props themselves up with, achieving a kind of stability, Lacan suggests, the operation is the same. And this is where Lacan makes a bold statement. The neurotic puts in question what is involved in the truth of knowledge. Direct quote from chapter 21. Whatever else the neurotic gets into, they are putting in question what is involved in the truth of knowledge. So here are two very tricky terms in Lacan. Truth and knowledge. Thankfully, this isn't the first time we've heard these terms thrown about in Lacan's work. Remember what he said about the not of neurosis in one of our previous chapters. We covered this in the lecture as well. At the center of every neurosis is a constitutive knot. That image of the knot recurs here in chapter 21 as well. At the center of every neurosis is a constitutive knot. What exactly is this knot of neurosis? Well, Lacan first starts to describe it as an an aporia. As an impasse, but as we've described it previously, it marks instead a certain kind of underpass. And here you have to think of that interior eight that we were working with in one of the previous lectures, where the unconscious is the underpass established by the loop interiorized in this diagram. We can draw it again very quickly for clarity purposes. So here you have an interior eight and we labeled each of these elements around this diagram accordingly. At the underpass that is established, by the overpass that I have thickened here to illustrate that this line passes over this line. Underneath that overpass, that's where we see the unconscious at work. The unconscious is what is screened by knowledge as it passes over that area. At your nine o'clock, we put the desire to know. At your six o'clock, we put self-conscious. And at your three o'clock, we put knowledge, such that the interior eight looked something like this. And you can imagine it unfolding as Lacan describes it from the unconscious Giving way to a desire to know, which unfortunately all too often results in a pursuit of know thyself, self-consciousness, which unfortunately, but all too often, uh, becomes false consciousness. And that then gets calcified in discourses, in disciplines, in what he's going to call knowledge. This is pretty useful because knowledge then is what comes up and provides the screen the very screen that gives us the unconscious. This is how the diagram moves. If you've seen our series on seminar 11, we make a lot of what Lacan does at the end of seminar 11, notably with an interior eight. This underpass is what makes the constitutive knot of neurosis. And if we were going to try and like outline what this knot is or where the knot occurs, it's right here in the dots. This is the knot that Lacan is referring to as the constitutive knot of neurosis. Yes, it's an aporia. Yes, it's an impasse. But I like the image of an underpass even better. The unconscious Qua knowledge of the sexual is what Lacan means by truth here. The unconscious is not opposed to knowledge. That's also why he's using the image of an interior eight. An interior eight prevents anybody from thinking that false consciousness is somehow separate from the truth that we see at the level of the unconscious. What Lacan wants to show is how it's by linking these elements, these movements, these modes, these moments, if you like your Hegel, together into a flowing flux represented by the movement of an interior eight, that what we see is that the unconscious is just a certain type of knowledge. It is an unknown field of knowledge, knowledge of the sexual because repressed. Here is where we would put the truth. The truth is in the underpass that is screened, that is overlaid, that is masked, these are terms from the tail end of Seminar 16, by the knowledge, the discourse, and the discipline, all of which conditioned by self-consciousness. So the unconscious is the underpass created by the overpass of knowledge as it spins out from self-consciousness. And this is the point in question. Yes, it's an impasse. Yes, it's an, an aporia. But think of it as an underpass, and I think you'll be even better served. The last key point in chapter 21 that I want to call our attention to is the relationship between the specific prominent substructures of neurosis, obsession, and hysteria, as Lacan describes them in here. It's really terrific stuff, especially alongside what we've already heard from him in this seminar about the pervert. So we can start at a broad level and talk about the knot of neurosis as it relates to this interior eight that we've worked up. And then we can follow Lacan further to actually look at how this constitutive knot is tied a little different for each of the clinical subtypes. And that's the whole point here, is that in the relationship between the systems of other, subject, and nowhere, jouissance quoi evacuated, we see that knot tied just a little bit differently. So let's check it out. Let's read with Lacan. And It's worth just hearing how he frames these before we jump into a summative statement. I think all too often we're eager to jump to the conclusion and arrive at the bumper sticker without doing the hard work of showing where these bumper stickers emerge and really paying close attention to the text itself. Let's start with the obsessive. In our translation, it's about three or four pages in. He starts talking about the obsessive as somebody who thinks that there is somewhere where everything that has happened is known. Once one begins to question oneself along this path, one recognizes that the signifier of the big other as completed is implicit and that for the obsessional neurotic, it is much more so than for others. So the fundamental fantasy that the other exists is much more prominent in the life of an obsessive, Lacan is suggesting, than that of others. That is why, at the level of history, insofar as that is why I took this angle, it is suggested not at all directly about the subject but moreover, the fate of objects. It is along this path that we can see how mad is the presupposition of some locus or other where it is known. The fundamental fantasy is fucking mad, Lacan is saying. Terrific riff on the obsessional here. He goes on, a few pages later, In my translation, I've got page 11 here. The paragraph that begins, I would say that the obsessional is the one who refuses to take himself as master. Terrific riff on obsessional neurosis. Because with respect to what is at stake, namely the truth of knowledge, remember how we got here, talking about the neurotic calling into question the relation between truth and knowledge what is important for him the obsessive is the relationship of this knowledge to enjoyment and what he want what he knows of this knowledge is that it has nothing nothing more of what remains from the first incidence of its interdiction namely objr any enjoyment is only thinkable for him as a treaty with the big other as whole Always imagined by him as fundamental with whom he deals. There's our fundamental fantasy playing out. Enjoyment for him is only authorized by a payment, but an always renewed payment insofar as this payment always goes into an insatiable jar of the deny, into this something that is never finished and that makes the modalities of the debt, the ceremonial, where alone he encounters his enjoyment. So the other is assumed to be whole, complete, and full. And so all of the obsessive's payments to that whole other Are worthless, and thus his debt to the other remains unpaid. The debt remains, and it's this that he enjoys at the level of his symptoms. The obsessive, we might say, believes that the big other exists, and knows that it exists, which is why all of his payments to the big other are worthless. I would add, almost as worthless as him. Recall also what we heard about the pervert. The obsessive is convinced that the big other exists and knows as much. The pervert thinks that the big other may exist, whether it knows it or not. But it can definitely be made to exist. And the pervert thinks, by God, that's my job. In other words, for the pervert, the big other may not exist. But it can certainly be made to exist. And that is what the pervert believes they're put on this earth to do. To bring jouissance to the barred other. To restore in the field of the other. In avatars of the big other, if you want to get down to it experiences of jouissance that have been subtracted from them, whose subtraction is the condition of possibility for their very existence. And the pervert shows up and says, I've got a special surprise for you. Which brings us to the hysteric. The stuff on the hysteric is the best, I think, in chapter 21. The stuff on the obsessive, we kind of knew all that. The stuff on the hysteric is terrific. It starts just after the paragraph we heard, on the obsessive. He starts by saying, the hysteric does not take herself for the woman. Okay, that's good. Fair enough. Notice where he goes with this though. What the hysteric they say represses, but what in reality she promotes is this point at infinity of enjoyment as absolute. She promotes castration at the level of this name of the symbolic father in the place of whom she posits herself, or as wanting to be in the final moment, his enjoyment. Interesting. Interesting cut. Now let's see where he goes with this. It culminates a few paragraphs later in an even better riff, a more elaborate riff on what this fucking means. What the hysteric does can be inscribed in this direction, namely, that he or she subtracts this obje as such from the absolute one of the other by questioning it. The hysteric interrogates the big other's supposed status as one, whole and complete, and subtracts from it this obje a that would render it incomplete by questioning whether it delivers or not this final one that is, in a way, her assurance. And so if you think about forward movement in Lacan's thought culminating in the discourse of the hysteric in Seminar 17, you can see this. The hysteric pushes the master, forcing him to confess that he knows nothing, or that his knowledge is lacking, or that he just is simply lacking not realizing that the hysteric is getting off on being the very thing that the his- that the master lacks and will never get in this process it is easy with the help of the model that i have just recalled to demonstrate that at best all her effort i mean the effort of the hysteric after having put in question this objet a will be nothing more than to find herself as such strictly equal to this a and nothing else. So you can see the discourse of the hysteric from seminar 17 emerging here. The truth of the hysteric is that she fancies herself strictly equal to this, this obje'ah, that she subtracts from the field of the big other in order to prove, to demonstrate that it's barred. Such here is the drama that is expressed by being transposed from the level where it is, where it is stated in a perfectly correct way in another, is expressed by the irreducible gap of a castration that has been realized. The hysteric withholds what the pervert freely gives themselves as the object cause of the other's jouissance. But again, in the spirit of our work in this lecture, let's be more precise. For the hysteric, the big other might not exist, but it could exist if only the hysteric would allow this to happen, which she will not. The fundamental fantasy here is that the hysteric believes that the big other thinks himself complete whole, and the like. And her job is to reveal that thinking as false. Part of her job, though, thus the condition of her employment, is the assumption that that thought is there. Lacan's point in all this is that each of these clinical structures stakes its existence on the status of the other, and I want to say the other as whole as one. If not in reality, as the obsessive presumes, then in potentiality, as the pervert hopes to realize. But what we know about the modality of potentiality is that it is always caught up with, inextricably tied to logics of impotentiality. And here we see the hysteric playing out. Lacan ends chapter 21 by saying that each of these clinical substructures, each of these knotted neuroses maintains a subjective equilibrium in relation to the question of whether the other as whole exists. It's a terrific final word in chapter 21. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the God. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.